you could please stand for the gospel reading. I'll be reading from Matthew 5, 21 to 26. <clears throat> you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. I read a excuse me. I read a story about a guy who was participating in a group discussion about anger. And during the discussion, the guy said, "I'm a Christian. I never get angry." And the group they broke out. It's a true story. The group broke out into laughter, and the guy was furious. <laughs> we have a challenge when we come to this passage, we have this predicament that we recognize, I think if we're honest with ourselves, that we get angry. And yet we have, I think it's pretty clear in this passage that Jesus is giving us a very stark warning that anger is a problem. I think we mostly know that. I think when I look back at my own life and I think of times that I've become angry, often even if it was justified anger, I have regret what came next. I have regret the pain and damage that my reaction to that anger caused. What we're here today is that the first of these six examples that Jesus is going to give us uh, in this section of the sermon, and if you remember from last week, what he's going to do, he's going to show us how the righteousness of disciples of Jesus must surpass those of the teachers, that of the teachers of the law. Right? We talked about last week, Jesus is not setting himself up against Scripture, not setting himself up against the law. Jesus said he's here to fulfill it. What Jesus is doing is saying, I want to I go deeper past the, the external parts of this law, past the legalistic parts of this law, and I want to tell you what this law is really about. I want to tell you what's at the heart of this command, of this law. How are we doing on uh, not murdering this week? How are we doing on anger this week? You know, working on this sermon about anger all week did not stop several times anger flaring up at myself at some things that happened to me. This is a challenge. I think it's also a challenge because can't anger be a good thing? We look back in the, the book of Exodus, and I actually tried to make 
the case to you that if we served a God who never got angry, never got angry at the injustice and the evil of the world, that would be a problem. God's anger is often rooted in God's love and care for the powerless, for example. Shouldn't we be the same? Wouldn't that be a problem if we looked around at the injustices of the world and we never got angry? And not only that, if we need to build our case for anger, we don't need to look any farther than Jesus, do we? I mean, think about when it's been a while, we were in the Gospel of Mark, there's a story, Jesus is in the, uh, the synagogue, and the, uh, the teachers of the law are there, and there's this man with a withered hand, and, and the teachers of the law, they're more concerned about uh, the legalistic understanding of Sabbath and trapping Jesus than they are this poor guy with a withered hand. We read that Jesus is angry. Jesus, of course, goes into the temple. He makes a whip of cords, and he begins to drive out the sheep and the cattle. I don't know what's on your mind, but when I see Jesus' face, it looks angry. And something should make us angry. Glenn Stassen points out that anger is a very useful diagnostic tool. Anger signals to us that something is wrong. Anger kind of helps us sniff out when something's wrong in our community. You've probably experienced this yourself. Think about a time at your work, even a time in our congregational life when something happens that makes you mad, right? You might even feel that anger coming up inside your body before you've even been able to figure out in your mind why you're angry. The anger is a signal to you. It signals to you something is not right. Anger helps us sniff out injustice and wrong. We call this, we might call this righteous anger. That's what I usually call my anger is righteous anger. I have this memory I, when I farmed in Illinois of being on a tractor. It really sticks in my mind. I think I was getting, using the front-end loader to get gravel, and I was fixing a, a dirt road, and I think I was listening to a podcast. At the time, I was pretty angry with someone. A guy in the podcast, if I remember right, he gets on, and he starts talking about Ephesians 4.26, where the apostle Paul says, be angry and do not sin. And I thought, yes. Thank you. Be angry. I am right to be angry. It felt good. I felt justified. Because let's be honest, anger can kind of feel good, at least for a little bit. Anger gets your blood pumping. Anger gets your adrenaline going. Anger allows you to blow off some steam. And if you can call that righteous, all the better. We don't, but think about it. We don't need God to tell us that. We don't need Jesus to model to us. We don't need Paul to approve our anger. We live in a culture that is just swimming in anger. And, and, and most of our culture, a lot of our culture is saying that anger is actually essential. Let me give you two slogans from two very different sides of the political spectrum. The first one goes like this. We the people are ticked. It doesn't say ticked, does it? We, the people, are ticked. The other one says, if you are not angry, you are not paying attention. Okay? Two different slogans from two very different sides of the political spectrum saying that anger is not the problem. The problem is if you are not angry. Both these groups would be angry about very different things, but they would agree on that. We live in a culture swimming in anger. Right? There's extreme cases. There's extreme cases of people driving down the road and having road rage, and now they're pulling guns. 
There's the stories of people boarding planes. They don't want to wear a mask, so they attack the steward or the stewardess. We have a society full of anger. And here's what's particularly discouraging to me. You know who some of the angriest people are? Christians. Christians are angry people. See, the anger is not just out there in society. The anger is in here. The anger is in our churches. The anger is in our homes. I just read a, saw a poll the other day that said one in five voters said that politics had hurt their friendships or family relationships. I was actually surprised that it wasn't higher. Because how many stories just in the last few years have you heard about fracturing in a family? Brothers will no longer talk to brothers. Parents will not talk to children and vice versa because they're angry. We are angry. And into this, into our society, into our churches, into our families, comes Jesus warning us about anger. Why is Jesus so concerned about anger? He gives us a couple examples. He, he moves from this teaching on anger to two names, raka and fool, which are these terms of contempt. The thing you need to know about these terms is they're fairly harmless. Okay? No one would have wanted to be called a fool or raka, but it's fairly harmless. You're, harmless. You're not going to drag someone to court for this. You knucklehead, you dimwit, you nincompoop. Like you can kind of imagine when Jesus is preaching that at this point the people are starting to chuckle a little bit. You know, I called my brother Dimwit just the other day. And boom. Jesus starts talking about hellfire. Right? Hellfire will wake you up. Hellfire wakes us up if we're sleeping. Something we find a little bit harmless, like calling someone a dimwit, all of a sudden, Jesus is taking this very, very seriously, saying, you better avoid anger like you avoid the plague. Because guess what? Anger turns into name-calling. Name-calling turns into contempt. Contempt turns into hatred. And hatred turns into murder. And I have to think, I don't know for sure, I have to think that Jesus has a story that he's thinking about. You know what story I think Jesus is thinking about? I think he's thinking about a story about two brothers named Cain and Abel. There's a story about these brothers in the book of Genesis. They're both bringing their offerings uh, to the altar for God, and, and God looks at Abel's offering, and he's very pleased with it. And he looks at Cain's offering, and he's not pleased with it. And this makes Cain angry. Anger rises up in Cain, we read in the text. And God says this to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. You must rule over it. Cain, I can see you're angry. Here's my question for you, Cain. What are you going to do with that anger? Because Cain... Sin is crouching at your door. Sin is right there waiting. You give that door just the slightest crack, and sin's moving in. Sin wants you. You can do what's right. You can rule over your anger, or you can allow sin to enter. And anger flares in Cain. I don't think that God is upset at Cain about being angry. That's not in the text at all. I'm imagining, like our own experiences with anger, you 
often really can't control the anger when it comes up. It just comes. But what God is saying to Cain is you have this space of time between the anger and how you react. What are you going to do with it, Cain? You've got the space. You can go one way, you can rule over it, or you can allow the anger to rule you. And of course, Cain gives in to the anger and he murders his brother. See, I don't think this is subtle, but I don't think Jesus is saying, don't be angry. Hear me out. This is, again, pretty subtle. What Jesus actually says in the passage is, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister. It's a subtle difference, but I think it's worth noting. Anyone who is angry. That gives me the impression of this sustained, continued anger against a brother or sister. I think that's what Jesus is getting at. Like Cain, like I said, things happen in our lives and we get angry. People do stuff to us, anger flies, flares up before we can even stop it. But there's this point where we have a chance to figure out how am I going to react to the anger? Am I going to rule over my anger or is my anger going to rule me? I see it as it's kind of like this ember of fire in us. The anger is lit. There's a little thing. We can either fan it. We can throw some fuel on it. We can heat things up. We can turn up the anger. That'll turn to hatred. That'll turn to kind of a raging fire in us. Or we can extinguish it. I think the Apostle Paul is getting to something similar in that passage in Ephesians I mentioned because he says, be angry, right? That's, that's the part I liked, justify my righteous anger. But look at what Paul says. Listen to what Paul says next. And do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. You're angry. Okay, deal with it quickly. Don't let the sun go down. Otherwise, you know what you're doing? You're giving the devil a foothold. Think about a time when uh, someone, shouldn't be too hard for most of us, think about a time in your life when someone made you angry. Maybe you didn't call them names out loud, but you said them in your head, right? Can you feel kind of the way the contempt for that person begins to grow? And the next day, guess what? You don't deal with that, and the sun goes down, and the next day, you're still angry. And now you're kind of ruminating about what this person's done in your head, and you're just playing it again and again. Maybe you're doing something that I've done before. You kind of play court in your head, right? You you allow them to present their evidence, and then you present your evidence. I'm always acquitted, and they're always guilty. And so I play the case again, and guess what? It's the same result every time. I'm acquitted, and they're guilty. And at that point now, my anger is morphing to something else. It's gone from anger to contempt. And now it's starting to feel like bitterness. Man, that is the perfect tool for the devil. Because before long, in that bitterness, now relationships are starting to be destroyed. Now people are starting to be estranged from each other. Parents now won't talk to their children. Children now won't talk to their parents. Brothers and sisters won't talk to each other. Friends are no longer friends. Brothers and sisters in Christ with whom you've worshipped your whole life, you now can't stand. You see why you may not have literally murdered that person, but you have murdered them in your heart because now you are working to eliminate that person from your life just like murder does. You see why Jesus is concerned about anger? But Jesus is such a good teacher. I'm trying to make that point a lot in the Sermon on the Mount. He's such a good teacher, preacher, because 
we might at this point feel a little bit hopeless. We know we have anger, and if we're honest, we know we haven't handled that well. And so we're looking, Jesus, what do I do with this thing that I know I have, that I struggle with? He offers us a way forward. Jesus doesn't just diagnose the problem. He offers us a way forward. Look at the word, therefore. Jesus says, I told you that anger at your brother and sister is a problem, but now I'm going to show you how to deal with that anger, and I'm going to do it with an illustration. Okay, So I want you to imagine with me, he's talking to his, these disciples, I want to imagine with me that you're, you're going to go to the temple and offer a gift, all right? You're going to go to the altar, and that sacrifice is probably an animal. That would have been a pretty common sacrifice, all right? We're in Galilee. The altar is in the temple in Jerusalem, 80 miles away, okay? So you get your animal in Galilee, and you walk five days down to Jerusalem, right? Go into the temple. The altar's right there. You're on your way to the altar, and it hits you. John back in Galilee is ticked. He's ticked. And I'm not, if I'm totally honest, it's been kind of stewing in the back of my mind. I'm kind of mad at John, too. I tried to suppress that on my journey to Jerusalem, but now it's all out there. He's angry. I'm angry. What do you do? You and I would probably say, you, you got this animal with you. Just do the sacrifice, get it done, head back to Galilee and talk with John. That's not what Jesus says to do, is it? You're right there. The altar's right there. You stop right here. You, now you've got to find someone to watch your goat or whatever for 10 days because you've got a five-day journey back up to Galilee. You've got to talk with John. And then you're five days back down to get to the altar and offer that sacrifice. What Jesus is saying is, I don't care how inconvenient this is for you. I don't care what excuse you have right now. Go and be reconciled with your brother or your sister. Imagine you're driving to Florida for the winter. You're just about to pull into Sarasota. It is 75 degrees. The sun is shining. Like you basically got your swim trunks on already. And it hits you. There's a problem back home. There's someone that's angry with you and you are angry with them. And you drove all the way to Sarasota and you tried to pretend that it wasn't there. But now you know it's there. What do you do? Jesus says, get back in the car, go back to Ohio. I don't care if it's snowing. I don't care how much gas costs. Go back to Ohio and make things right. Because whatever reason you have right now, it's not good enough. You see how Jesus is drawing us in right now? Because I'm guessing if you're anything like me, you've got somebody in your mind. It's almost impossible to listen to Jesus' teaching and not have someone come into your mind. If we're honest, our lives, our churches, our biological families are littered with broken and unreconciled relationships. Maybe the anger isn't burning as hot as it used to. Maybe the anger is just kind of smoldering. Maybe we chose, rather than make peace with that person, we decided to make peace with our own anger, our own broken relationship. 
Because there's always a reason, right? There's always a reason why we can't talk to them. They probably don't want to talk with me. That was so long ago. They probably don't even remember that incident. What happened was so painful, it would not be appropriate for me to bring that back up. I would just open up wounds again. You know, I, I, I got someone in my mind, but I, no, I need to let that go. Well, maybe it's their fault. See, one of the things that I'm really struck by in this passage is that Jesus says this. He doesn't say this. I'm sorry. He, he says this. If you get to the altar and there remember your brother or sister has something against you, so I usually, when I hear this passage, I hear myself, I get to the altar, and I remember I have something against my brother or sister, okay? They've done something to me, but that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, when you get to the altar and they remember they have something against you, how have I wronged them, not how did they wrong me? See, I think this is important because I think Jesus recognizes he, we can't force reconciliation. We can't go to a person and say, you have to be reconciled with me. I think Jesus is aware that there's situations like that. I think Jesus is also aware that there's situations where the person genuinely has sinned against you. There will be teaching in Matthew's gospel about what you do when your brother or sister sins against you. I don't think that's what Jesus is addressing though right now. I think what Jesus is saying is if we do some hard work and put ourselves in our shoes of our brother and sister, if we see things from their perspective, we'll realize that it's never one-sided, is it? That we played a role in this broken relationship too. See, I think if you're like me, I want reconciliation with people in broken relationships when they realize how bad they've messed up. If they would only realize how much they hurt me, if they would only realize their fault, then we could have reconciliation. But that's not the story Jesus tells. And think about how different the conversation is when I go to my brother and sister and I say, I am so angry with you and I need to tell you all the reasons why I'm angry with you. Compare that with a conversation that begins with, I sense there's some brokenness in our relationship. And I want to hear from you how you're feeling, how I have hurt you in this relationship. Think about what that opens up. Okay, rather than putting the person on the defensive, you have opened up space for reconciliation. And maybe they don't admit they did any wrong. Maybe they just can't see it at the time how they had hurt you. Jesus doesn't allow that to be an excuse. He knows at the end of the day, you can't force that person to see the errors of their way. What you can do is go to them and seek reconciliation, to apologize, to say, I want to reconcile with you. Who do you need to be reconciled with? Where have you, rather than make peace with your brother and sister, your son, your daughter, your father, your husband, your wife, where have you, instead of sought seeking peace, you've made peace with your bitterness? You've made peace with a broken relationship. 
who do you need to be reconciled with? There are some circumstances where a person is too sick or too old or too powerless or maybe in the case of a parent, they're no longer alive, where there's not the possibility to go seek reconciliation. Okay? There may be some circumstances where what Jesus is asking is impossible, but we still have to act. We still got to find a counselor. We got to find a mature and trustworthy friend to help us work out this anger. Living with this anger is not a possibility. I think those cases are more rare than we'd like to think. I think those cases are more rare. There may be those times, but most of what we have in our head right now, we can act on. And Jesus is very, very serious about this. Who do you need to be reconciled with? As followers of Jesus, we have to pursue reconciliation. We cannot sit around and wait for reconciliation to come to us. We cannot sit around and wait for that person finally to act and come to us. Jesus, every excuse we have, Jesus takes away. Who are you out of sorts with? Who's out of sorts with you? If the answer in your head is no one, I would encourage you to go to the Lord and make sure that's correct. To Ask the Lord, is there someone that's out of sorts with me? Is there someone I'm out of sorts with? Maybe that person is here at church. You need to set up a time to talk with them. Maybe that's your son or daughter, your mother or father. Call them when you get home. Maybe that's your spouse. You need to set up some time today to talk. Jesus is so serious about this that in reality, if we would listen to him, a lot of us would get up from our pew right now and walk home because that's what he's saying to do, right? He's saying, you reach the altar. You're at the place of worship. Stop. Stop and go be reconciled with your brother or sister. We are worshiping our Lord right here, and yet we have unreconciled relationships we are aware of. Jesus is saying, no excuses. No excuses. Don't go out to lunch to distract yourself. Don't turn on a football game to distract yourself. Don't let the sun set on your anger today in hopes that tomorrow you'll have forgotten about this in hopes that you've finally distracted yourself enough. No excuses. Why can Jesus say that? Why can Jesus say no excuses? Because he's our wise teacher. Because he knows that in this kingdom that he's bringing on earth, which he's inviting us as disciples to step into, he knows that kingdom cannot be populated by angry and unreconciled relationships. A community of anger and broken relationships is not salt or light to the world around us. We cannot be known as disciples for our anger, for our broken relationship. That is not salt and light. We are to be known for our love, not our anger. Jesus knows we need this for ourselves. These unreconciled relationships you're holding on to are toxic for you. Not only are they not good for that person, they are not good for you. Rather than becoming a person of hope, you're becoming a person who is bitter. That is not the way of Jesus. That is not the way of Jesus. And Jesus can say this because he has the right to say it. Because if anyone had the right to remain distant from a broken relationship, if anyone had the right to remain angry, 
It was him. He was perfect. He had done no wrong. Yet, though in the very nature of God, though he was perfect, though he committed no wrong, he left his home in heaven to make peace with us, to reconcile us through his life, death, and resurrection with our God. He's our teacher. He's our example.